Hey everybody, welcome to your off-week content for the Gimme the Loot podcast, a TTRPG podcast that hasn't been to space, but can proudly say that this week's guest absolutely has. And frankly, he only gets more interesting from there. And, you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, I guess we really don't know what podcast the astronauts listen to. We could be in there. We're probably not in there. This week, we're rebroadcasting the audio from our stream interview of Richard Garriott, a founding father of the video game industry and the commercial spaceflight industry, master of both the North and South Poles, and legitimately just a incredibly engaging person to talk to, incredibly generous with their time, was, was a blast to interview, was incredibly enthusiastic about everything that he talked about. And man, if there was an interview that we could have let run for hours and hours and hours, it was this one. Check out the link to his website in the show notes below for even more information. Couple of reminders, Gimme the Loot is not a family-friendly show due to a mix of profanity, crude humor, and gore. Although we did try to be on our best behavior here, you will learn what TTP means. And of course, as a rebroadcast of our streaming content, there's a few more bits, bobs, click clabs, warbles, and wobbles in the audio. To catch this content in real time, show up Monday, 7.30 Central Standard Time at twitch.tv slash gmdlcast, and you'll get to see us do these interviews. Talk about the history of D&D and its rule sets and how combat is involved. That's kind of what we're in the middle of right now. See us create characters based off of anything from the OG Rugrats to pirates and other creative activities a little bit of a different content than our actual play just a quick note on our release schedule next week's going to be a campaign episode the week after that's going to be a regular campaign episode then we'll be back to a join the party episode and then back to campaign and so on and so forth don't really want to split them up next time since the rest of the jtps will publish as a single episode Maybe a little bit of a chonky one, but there you go. Once again, thank you for joining us. Once again, Mr. Garriott, thank you so much for your time. And as always, hope you enjoy the rebroadcast of the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Guest Quest, the uh, TTRPG and science community uh, live stream brought to you by the Gimme the Loot podcast, a TTRPG podcast that uh, occasionally gets to talk to some of the people that, you know, built the games that they really learned about RPGs from. Uh, we are joined tonight by none other than Lord Br British, a.k.a. Richard Garriott. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be with you. And uh, joining us tonight uh, to to ask questions about video games, space, and more are... I, Harlan McKenzie. I, you guys don't know, but I'm a space nerd, and this is awesome. <laughs> this is the first person I've ever spoken to who has left this planet. This is actually amazing for me. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That, yeah, that time I astral projected doesn't count no matter what the shaman says. So. <laughs> also joining us are... Uh, I'm Jamie. I play Eldrin on Gimme the Loot. And yeah, I have nothing exciting. I play a lot of video games, so I'm really excited to talk to you. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Me too. I play a lot of video games as well. There we go. As you might, as you might imagine. <laughs> right. I am Anthony, who plays Bobo on Gimme the Loot. And yeah, this is this is talking to a living legend right now. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> 
Yeah, thanks, thanks. I wish you guys would have been this excited in the chat stream when I booked it. Because <laughs> y'all were like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're, they got their game face on now. <laughs> yeah. It's it's because we didn't believe you for a week. That's what happened. Yeah, I was like, no, it can't be right. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> no, you joked about it. You said something like, you'll never believe who we have coming up as a guest. And I, I said somebody, and you was like, he also went to space. I said, you got Richard Garrett on his feet? <laughs> uh, uh, you're quick. No, no, that's not what he said. He said, Richard Branson? Question mark. And I went, oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> the other, no, that was the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I said, he was like, no, but he also went to space. And I said, got it. <laughs> All right. Guys, real quick, while I throw out a first question, will the rest of y'all roll initiative because we got so wrapped up in Space Talk backstage, we, we actually got distracted and didn't do it. Oh, anything. yeah. So the format, so if for some reason you're new, is that the crew will roll initiative. They will ask questions in initiative order as they go around. If you uh, want to throw a question in the chat, we uh, if the guys get stuck, they can certainly pull from the chat. Uh, if they want to ask a follow-up question, they'll take a bonus action. If they want to ask a follow-up to somebody else's question, they will use a reaction, and if they feel stumped, they can use the dodge action. And if they use more than one of those, then we feel free to we we feel free to make fun of them as much as as we possibly can. Uh, and then, of course, at the end, should the guests so choose, they are allowed to ask one question that the entire cast must answer to to put them on the spot. So, first off, I'll start it off while the guys roll. Uh, you guys figure out the initiative order and just holler at me once you once you've got it. Look, I, I came up playing Ultima. Um, it was one of the first real computer series that I got into. And and obviously I played D&D &D way, way back in the day. So since we're technically a D&D &D show, let's start off with TTRPGs. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with TTRPGs and maybe how they led into your, your video game experience? No, you know, absolutely. In fact, I, I wish I'd stood up and grabbed something off that shelf back there behind me. I might do it in the middle of the middle of our chatting here, but uh, uh, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons in 1977, which it may be the actual year was initially published, it's maybe a year off, but um, uh, it and and I play with the original three book stitched set, yep. and I have that saddle stitch set right there behind my Apple II computer where I wrote my that I wrote my first game on, and uh, and my mother uh, to make sure I didn't get it lost and intermingled with my friends' same books wrote my name on it, so I have you know my my mother's neat handwriting. You know, on uh, on my books there on my shelf, and uh, but it's it's fascinating though that even from the very beginning when I was playing role playing games on pen and paper, I was I didn't play the normal way. I didn't play by the rules. It, 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 immediately, the rules were just sort of a push into interactive storytelling, where you know both me and all the friends I started playing with in these early days quickly ignore the rules. And if whatever it is you were choosing to do was either clever or funny, it tended to work magically. Yeah. And if you just were a lump on a log and didn't do anything quick enough or did something obviously stupid or boring, then guess what? It didn't work. And so it, it really very quickly blurred over into interactive storytelling. And, um, uh, uh, and, and so so all my pen and paper experience was really towards ignore the rules. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, when you start working on a computer, the computer only does rules, right? The computer, right. the computer doesn't do creative answers uh, particularly well, even now, much less back in back then. And so it was a real struggle 
to, for me, in fact, this game right here, the, the very first ones, um, you know, I think that game has the classic six D and D attributes in it, <laughs> but for example, some of them literally are not used. And so, for example, there is no test in my first game that ever checks your wisdom, I suspect. <laughs> and there's probably none that check your charisma either, because all it is is a bash monsters, you know, with a you know probability dice. And so most all the attributes are literally irrelevant. <laughs> and and what that and so what that kind of this journey sort of taught me is versus try to make up tests that bother to check your wisdom or bother to check your charisma. It, it'd be better to just ditch it. Mm. And because, because even the, even the ones you were using, like maybe intelligence, uh, you know, you can go like, well, if charisma intelligence, they're close enough. I might as well put them on the, the five tests I have for anything in the game. Might as well use intelligence for a couple of things instead of each thing for maybe one test in the whole game. And so I became a strict minimalist mm. from uh, when I started coming up with rules of my own, the, that blend of going from being a pure storyteller to then realizing that unless you test an attribute, it's an irrelevant attribute, mm -hmm. um, suddenly made me a strict minimalist from a rule standpoint. So uh, anyway, that's sort of my journey from paper into digital. Yeah, a lot of our cast members will also tell you that their stats are irrelevant, but that's just because they don't like saving throws. Harlan, you're up. <laughs> All right. Well, first thing I'm going to say is you have... You have of, of the group, you have the three game designers and developers. Three of us have worked in the game industry, worked together and things like that. Uh, I was a member of the IGDA uh, here in Austin, things like that. I'll that'll bring up a different thing. But I'm going to go from leave the the video game section for a second. And I've got to ask you this question about space, of course. So I mentioned <laughs> you are the first person I've ever spoken to who's left this planet but you grew up with an astronaut. How was it growing up with your father as an astronaut? Well, you know, it's it's it's, it's funny you ask that because uh, I, you know, there's still few enough people that have left the world. I know the numbers, so I'm the <laughs> 483rd person to leave the Earth. Wow, wow! And my dad was the 36th person to leave the Earth. Oh, <laughs> wow, wow! And uh, uh, and we're just now like 580, maybe we're pushing 600 now. Wow. And, uh, and but what's funny is I think, you know, everybody thinks whatever it is you grew up with is normal. Right. I mean, so mm. so I, you know, not only was my dad an astronaut, but my right hand neighbor, Joe Engel, another shuttle astronaut, <laughs> left hand neighbor, Hoot Gibson, another shuttle astronaut over my back fence was another astronaut. And my neighborhood that was three blocks outside the front gates of NASA did have people that were not astronauts. But they were all contractors for NASA mm -hmm. who were putting people into space. So right. I literally knew no one who wasn't involved either in putting people into space or going themselves. And so it was really weird when I went to college at the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, and I arrived there. And first I met a group called the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronisms, which became some of my best friends and characters in my games. Mm -hmm. But their jobs were things like one of them was a baker and one of them was a firefighter and one of them was a police officer. And one of them actually carved gravestones for, you know, a living. And, uh, and one of them, Yolo the Bard made lutes for a living and composed music. And I'm going like, I met suddenly what broadly I started to describe as the Sesame street people <laughs> that, you know, I kind of grew up thinking Sesame street was a fantasy, <laughs> mm, yeah. you know, not, uh, not normal. 
I realized, oh shit, I've been growing up in this abnormal place. And, you know, now I've, I've realized it. <laughs> because, uh, uh, but, but to more directly answer your question, what was it like? The, the, my main reflection on what was truly special about it was our access to techno toys. Mm. And so, for example, my dad always had experiments and things at home that he was preparing to take to space or helping somebody else take to space. And, and, and so we would always get a chance to play with these. And so like one time my dad had uh, brought home and I'll tell you what it was called at the time. You'll, you may quick, you may get ahead of me and figure out what it's modernly called. But one thing was a, is a, a, a cylinder of aluminum that was about the size of the plastic cup. I'm, but some more cylindrical, but about that same size. And, um, and on the front side of it, you could screw in a camera lens. And on the back side of it, you could screw in a, an eyepiece out of a telescope. And on the side of it, you could turn on a switch that would power, turn on the voltage from a nine volt battery. And when you looked at it, uh, it was uh, what was called a photo multiplier tube. And so whatever the camera lens could see was brightened by the photo multiplier tube. And so you could go out at night and go through the garden where normally the cats could sneak around in the dark, but you could now see them <laughs> because you're using what basically was the precursor to night vision scopes. Night vision. Yeah. Mm, that's awesome. And so, and so not, but the concept of night vision, the word of night vision didn't even exist, but we were, but as children, we were out playing with it in the garden with our, with our pets. And, um, and the same thing was true where like, um, everybody of course is very familiar with Polaroid cameras, although they're, disappearing or you know uh, back in vogue a little bit now but i don't know if you remember the old polaroid cameras used to pop open mm -hmm. kind of sideways kind of pop open mm -hmm. and then when you click the button on them they go and they would roll out the photo and they would squish the developer onto the film as it rolled out of the camera well we had one of those made out of aluminum literally just carved on a router out of aluminum that we would use at home that was originally made for space. <laughs> and again, but it was before anybody ever had these things. And so, but, but of course, as a kid, you don't have any clue that everybody's not playing with these. You just think, uh, you know, it's pretty normal until you go to, in my case, UT college, at UT, and you're going like, Oh, wow. I was, I was kind of in a weird bubble, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but it was fun. It was, it was, it was big fun. That sounds awesome. Yeah. We had cattle prods nowhere, nowhere near as fun as that. Uh, I believe uh, Eldrin, you're up. <laughs> <laughs> So, so not only have you traveled to space, but you've also, you're a very uh, exclusive club of traveling to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and I just wanted to know which of those trips was one scarier and two, which of those did you think was the cooler time? Well, there, um, uh, so, so it's funny, there's actually two people on the planet who've been both to space and orbital space and the bottom of the, the Mariana Trench. Kathy Sullivan is another astronaut who, uh, uh, has been to both. So I have to include the North Pole and the South Pole to make sure that I beat her. So <laughs> you're the only one. Yep. <laughs> yep. You're the only one. That did that. <laughs> the only way to become truly unique where I'm in a club of one is if I go pole to pole orbit to the bottom. So then there's, I'm the only one. So awesome. And, uh, and they're both awesome. And this is a model that white model right there. That's the sub, a model of the sub called limiting factor, which is the first vehicle that has been made that can make repeated full ocean dive depths to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. And I'm the 17th person who's been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and while that is a truly awesome trip, space beats it hands down. 
being in orbit is so otherworldly, so awesome in the dictionary definition of awe, awe and wonder uh, that, you know, when you're in space, looking back down at the earth, you cannot take your eyes off the view. It, it feels like there's a fire hose of, of information about the reality that we live in. That's just pouring into your mind. Every moment you're looking out at it, you, you know, you're noticing how all the major systems of the earth are interconnected. You're, you see how, um, uh, you know, the first thing you notice, by the way, is weather because about half the earth is covered in clouds most of the time. And so you notice how clouds form in different parts of the world, like over the Pacific, where it's all one temperature of water. It forms these big laminar or fractal mathematical shapes. But in other parts of the world, like over the Gulf, where there's warmer water and different land masses and temperatures, it's more chaotic. And you see a lot more, you know, hurricanes and things forming there. Uh, You know, you see how the wind has sculpted these amazing shapes in deserts of the Earth. You see all the places meteorites have impacted, which are actually shockingly everywhere on the planet. You see the edges of all the tectonic plates around the earth. Oh, wow. You know, you see how thin the atmosphere is and how a forest fire or pollution easily fills the tiny atmosphere we have with, with uh, you know, soot or pollution of one kind or another. You see the impact of humanity everywhere, right? There's roads everywhere. There's, uh, we're popping up fossil water in every desert to grow crops. You know, even the places you think are wilderness like the Amazon or the Canadian, you know, northern country, Everywhere is covered with roads. Everywhere you can see massive amounts of clear cutting of trees and other things. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, even fresh water. Another thing you look at and you, you, you just anywhere you look, you just see story after story about story about how complex and um, fragile the interrelated problems are on this planet. So it's just it's truly awesome. So space wins. Very cool. Yeah, I I would imagine that space, the experience is more expansive, whereas being at the bottom of the trench, it's more compressive uh, just with the amount of percep- your, your field of perception that you would have. That's what. Yeah. What's interesting is, uh, yeah, it, for, at the bottom, you can only see as far as your lights are bright. The light. Go- and yeah. um, uh, and that's not very far. <laughs> Even with bright lights, that's not very far. <laughs> um, and there is life down there. I mean, you know, I, in fact, I'm literally in my refrigerator. I have some 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 life forms I brought up from the bottom of the bottom of the ocean uh, called. Uh, um, uh, what are they called? I forgot their name off the top of my head. But uh, um, these uh, little shrimp like creature creatures that live down there at the bottom. Sir, I, I, with all due respect, I'm pretty sure that's how most zombie movies start. <laughs> <laughs> you're on notice now. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, you took it home. You took home this strange alien life form and uh-oh. <laughs> Patient zero. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's true. And uh, yeah, they are in the, I think they're in the refrigerator. Hmm, maybe it's a good check. But you're correct that you're definitely looking at, you know, only the things that are right in front of you. Uh, but interestingly, they're the, the capsule that you're in, actually, they're very similar. Mm. They're both incredibly small. Um, you know, you're, you're scrubbing CO2 that you exhale. You're adding mm-hmm. oxygen to make up for that. You have to manage the pressure to stay pretty close to one atmosphere. Um, the hull, you know, in the case of um, a, a spacecraft is holding in one atmosphere of pressure. Mm-hmm. In the case of the submarine, it's holding out a thousand atmospheres of pressure, which is why a spacecraft is very thin metal. And the submarine is, you know, nine centimeters of titanium Oof. and perfectly spherical. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise it would be crushed. 
And, um, uh, but it's, but it's fascinating, you know, how much of everything from life support radios, everything else, you know, you, all the tools of the trade have a, a very strong, either identical aspect or a similar, you know, concept. Both trying to keep you alive from outside of what those things are. So, yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. Death would come quickly if the, without the, without the halls, death comes quickly. I don't know if I want to be crushed to death or oh, you know, in the vacuum of space. I don't know if I had to pick my poison. I don't quite know which one. Yeah, so I, I forgot who which of you asked me you know, which one was scarier. But um, interestingly, neither one feels scary. And and the reason why I would say that is that you know you have you've long before you get in resigned yourself to the statistical concerns. Right. And in my mind, to be scary, things have to happen that surprise you, mm. right? And if there's bangs or shakes or water leaking in or water air leaking out, you know, those would be things that would make it scary, if not terrifying. But you, by the time you've flown in the spacecraft or dove in the submarine, you have been through every procedure dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And so you kind of know that, like in the case of the submarine, if anything's going to kill you, it's going to happen so fast, you will not notice. I mean, it's going to implode explosively and that'll be the end of it. And you won't feel it. You won't hear it coming. There won't be any clue. It's just going to bam happen. And, you know, space, you're going like, ah, that one could be a little worse. You know, the, 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 it could take 60 seconds, you know, of uh, you know, going without air before your blood boils and kills you or whatever it might be. But um, but all of those are things where you're going like, OK, you know, you're you, you've you've made the commitment and you're going and, um, you know, and the closest thing to scary, which I wouldn't even describe as scary, but like in the case of a, a Russian Soyuz, which is the one I flew on, you know, in, in America, we bolt our rockets to the ground until the engines are already at 100 percent thrust and have been that way for most of a second. And then we release the rockets and so the rocket leaps off the pad and it's at its full acceleration instantaneously. In Russia, they don't do that. In Russia, gravity is holding down the rocket, and the rocket is actually being held by four brackets that are just above its center of mass. And so it's just hanging mm-hmm. in a bracket over a pit. And so when that rocket, went, as, it, as the engines slowly throttle up, as soon as the thrust is a tiny, tiny, tiny bit greater than its mass... <laughs> That rocket barely, and I mean so truly imperceptibly, begins to rise. And the brackets fall away, and then slowly but surely the rocket lifts. But what that means when you're on the inside, so imagine me, I'm here on the inside for my first launch into space, my only launch so far into space. And you're with your crewmates, and you want to make sure you all do your job right, because otherwise you're all dead. Mm -hmm. And so you're here, and you're going through the countdown, and you get to the place where the engine's light. And you go, okay, well, I kind of expected to hear something or maybe feel some vibration, but I honestly, I don't, (laughs) but I can't stop and ask my crewmates, (laughs) why don't I feel anything? Because we're still doing the checklist. Oh my God. And then you get to the next line where the, the liftoff has occurred. And again, it's imperceptible. So Mm. you're again, you're going like, well, did we launch? You know, you really can't tell. And then you begin to see some numbers changing on the display. So you're going like, well, we must be moving. Oh, wow. And then finally, you begin to feel some pressure as the G-forces begin to increase. And you go like, okay, now we're moving. And my task during this launch procedure, so I, I was busy before launch configuring power and life support. During the launch, 
during the entire eight and a half minute ascent from the ground to space, I'm the emergency procedures person. And so the commander and engineer are really doing the work for this eight and a half minutes. I'm here to where if a red light goes on, I need to know what is the next command in the failure modes that I need to have my crewmates do. And so I'm sitting here kind of waiting for like the, <laughs> the uh, escape tower to fire mm. or some other really big, you know, something to go wrong. And so it it is psychologically a bit weird to have the task Wait for- of waiting for something to go wrong as you're, you know, taking this ride up into space. But 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 even then, I wouldn't call that scary. It's just a kind of a weird thing that's in your mind is. My job is when it goes wrong. And and hey, as the emergency exit guy, you get the bigger seat. Like you have that little bit of extra foot room. <laughs> the leg room. It's all about the leg room. <laughs> <laughs> it's your leg room. Don't I wish. No, 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 no leg room. No leg room. <laughs> Anthony, you're up. All right. So we actually came here for his video games, right? Did we? <laughs> no. Uh, I guess I wanted to know like that initial push of like what made you decide like let's take Ultima online. Let's like figure out how to make this and put thousands of people into a single server and watch them wreak havoc. Like what, <laughs> like at that time, like now, now MMO seem like, you know, it's kind of an, you know, online gaming is, is normal nowadays, but like at that time, it's like, that is a innovative thing to try and just think of and come up with and like problems to fix. Like what made you take that on? Yeah. And so, well, what's interesting about that question is that, um, um, we had been thinking about it for a long time before we started it. Mm. Uh, and uh, and so what we were doing is, you know, even even at the very beginning, literally, you know, I, I this this game that I wrote on the Apple II mm-hmm. in 1979 and released it in 1980. And uh, even at, in 1980, there was already a system called Plato that would allow people to play multiplayer. Um, there were already universities where you would dial in and you have to, you know, uh, a 140 baud modem, you know, two people at a time, at least two could play like a net trek kind of turn-based multiplayer thing. And, uh, and so we, all, from the very beginning, we had this idea of, you know, this should really be multiplayer. And, and, and the middle Ultimas had a party really to emulate the pen and paper, you know, kind of, you know, feeling of I'm not here alone. Because uh, and so the this, this social aspect was always a driving force of how do we make this social, but in the '80s and even part of the '90s, the best connectivity were dial-up services that you generally paid for by the minute, and when you're paying by the minute, being in an online game where you're kind of hanging out, socializing with your friends, burns through a heck of a lot of money really fast. And, uh, and so there were, you know, there were companies like Kesmai and uh, others that were making some of the first text MUDs, multiplayer dungeons, and even a few graphical MUDs. Uh, and we were watching those very carefully. And we would even actually call them on the phone and negotiate, hey, can we work together to make what, in fact, our, our pet name for the project was Multima, Multiplayer Ultima. We actually have, we actually have logos and things made for Multima. Awesome. And, but every time we did the analysis, you know, all of the games were played during the bulletin board service era. The most any of them ever had, like Genie Air Warriors, they had something like 15,000 people maximum who ever played any of those games. 
And when you looked at the revenue from those, we were just going like, there is no way we can pay for a full Ultima game in that, with that kind of, with those minimal numbers. And so we, every, you know, every couple of years we go look at it and we did that for a decade or more. And then finally we saw the development of the World Wide Web happening. And so we, the team that had been th thinking about this already for a decade, sat down and said, okay, now, now is the time. Now, you know, it's, it's very clear that internet is going to be basically free or you pay a monthly subscription, not a permanent usage. That's going to open it up to everyone to be able to play. And so now we know that everybody that buys an Ultima would be able to buy a Multima and, and, and rock on. We're going to have this great future that we've been trying to do for 20 years. And so this was after Origin was, had been purchased by Electronic Arts. And so the way you, way you, the way Electronic Arts still to this day greenlights things is twice a year, they have a, a, a time where developers pitch the executives as to their idea for a game. And the way you do that is you first write up a document, your proposal for the game idea, and then you write up another document, which is your budget and how much staff it'll need and how much time it'll take. And you write up another document, which is actually filled out by sales and marketing. And what sales and marketing does is they do, they go out and they canvas other games in the industry and they go, how much do we think we can sell based upon the documents you gave us oh, wow. and based on looking at the market, how much do we think sales can sell? Right. And mm -hmm. so sales, sales went out and said, well, the very best game in the whole world sold about 15,000 units of like Genie Air Warriors. And, you know, had a pretty minor income. And so let's suppose you guys are right. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt and say you might bring in 30,000 people right. at max at peak. And they do the math and said that won't make it. So the answer is no. So we pitched this to EA and EA basically said, forget it. There's no market for it. You, you're not greenlit. Mm. So we waited six months. The World Wide Web was becoming popular. Six months later, we go back with the same pitch. Sales comes and gives us the same projections, and we're told, no, you can't make it. We wait till the next pitch section. So now it's a full year after our first time to pitch. Oh, wow. We give the same, we have the same pitch again. Sales gives us the same projections. We're told no a third time. And me and Star Long, who became the producer on the project, who were the ones doing the pitch, we basically just said, we're not leaving the room. <laughs> we said, look, origin has, you know, I can't remember, our whole company's budget at that point was something like 10 million a year or something like that. And so whatever it was, it's whatever the number is, call it the whole. And what we're asking for is like $250,000. We're asking for $250,000 to produce a beta usable prototype. Hmm. And for you guys to tell us no, when none of the company budgets are ever as close as $250,000 one way or the other, Right. The option value of doing this is so great that we're just, we're not going to take no for an answer. We're just literally going to camp out in the executive decision-making process here. We're not leaving the room until you say yes. And we live, I mean, literally it became a shouting, yelling, screw you kind of, I mean, it was, it was a bloodbath, but eventually uh, Larry Probst wrote me out a sheet of paper that says, okay, I give origin the ability to go over 200,000, $250,000 over budget as a company for this stupid thing called you know, Multima or Ultima Online, it might already been called, to go do it. And so we started it. And what was funny is when we started it, first, it was sort of the bastard stepchild product that, that nobody in EA wanted it, right? Nobody wanted it. Right. And so any resources, like the best programmers, the best artists, the best anything, if anybody else could use it on another more important project, 
then they got shuffled somewhere else. Mm. So we had sort of the scrappy, independent, you know, rough and tumble group that had terrible, the worst offices in the place, the least support in the place. And we started building the, this little prototype uh, of it. And the first thing it was, was really just characters moving around together in a virtual world that you could do nothing in other than maybe bump into walls. Right. And we had only one interactive object that I'll basically call a football. I mean, it wasn't really, it was a dot, it was a box or something. And if you touched the box, you automatically picked it up. And if somebody bumped into you, you dropped it. And, and that alone suddenly swept through the office <laughs> as a, a great game that everybody loved to play. And so suddenly we knew that we were already onto something big. And it's just that no one else yet knew it. And so then we spent, you know, 18 months or two years building the prototype. And we burned through our, about said how long it took us to burn through our $250,000. And at the end of the $250,000, we're going like, okay, well, now we have uh, uh, the, the dial-up, even though it's a World Wide Web, it's still dial-up of, of internet. And so it's still super slow. And so the game now fits basically on a CD, but no one can download a CD on, a, on dial-up modems. And so we're going, wait a minute, now, now what are we going to do? Because now we need to send any beta tester a disk, but we don't have any money to pay for disks and mailing to send it to them. And so we put up what is literally Electronic Arts' first website ever as a company. Oh, wow. The UO. And a two-letter two letter website, UO.com, wow. which I presume EA still owns. <laughs> and, uh, and the UO.com website, when it went up, all it said was, hey, we're the Ultima crew. We're making this new game, you know, Ultima Online. We'd love for you to come join us and participate in the beta test, but for for you to for us to send you a disc so that you can help us test it, you have to send us five dollars so that we can afford to, <laughs> to you know make the disc and send it to you. And within like two or three days, fifty thousand people nice had responded to it and sent in five dollars. Nice. Wow. And suddenly, Oof. everyone else in EA got it. Yeah. <laughs> and so suddenly it went from being the bastard stepchild product to the most important thing happening in EA worldwide. We got way more help than we wanted or frankly was helpful. Uh, and then when it finally did ship, it was the fastest selling PC game in origin and electronic arts history. That's awesome. And ultimately sold millions. So uh, it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah, I spent spent a lot of time in covetous. Spent a lot <laughs> of time in covetous, hiding out from PVPers. Um, but you know, what one of the things, and I think you know, it was it was obviously groundbreaking in a lot of ways. But I also think it's really one of the first classic examples of emergent gameplay because unlike a lot of the MMOs you've got now, it is there wasn't. A necess- I don't want to say a plot, but it wasn't as story driven or as NPC driven. The, the players literally were the game. And so you would see these individual systems develop. There was a, a, a guild on the shard that I played on called Covetous Crew that would just sweep through Covetous every now and again. And after, you know, my friends and I got wiped out a couple of times. Uh, when If you picked stealth as your uh, original starting skill you would you would respawn with your noob cape <laughs> and so we uh we just became scavengers and whenever we die we would just reappear in our our little <laughs> underwear and our capes and we would sweep through and pick up all the stuff that the covetous guys left behind and so you know it was this weird junker game that we developed out of just the, the, the pvp which 
I, there, there is a question I'm getting at here. The, you know, Ultima itself was built around the like. There's the concept of virtues and avatars, and there's this this emergent storyline. And I think with every iteration, it seemed to be, hey, how much more can you give the players a little bit more agency to do stuff from where you're doing originally? I think text prompts were the original way to get the avatar to do stuff to to go on from there. Was was that always the intent to get to a fully emergent where you kind of surprised the directions that the community went and the gameplay developed within the space? What was what kind of what was the design process? And then were you surprised with how the reality kind of lined up with what the original concept was? Well, um, very insightful question. And I would say um, uh, that uh, it would 99% was surprise. <laughs> um, the, uh, but let me even take you before Ultima Online and just tell you how surprising even the solo player game journeys were, right? You know, so with this game at Calabeth, you know, it sold 30,000 copies on its own. But I never, during the time of a Calabeth, I never spoke to or heard from anyone who ever played it. <laughs> the only reason I knew that people liked it is because 30,000, I got a check for 30,000 copies, right? So I was like, all right, that's cool. I'm going to go make another one. Checks was coming in. <laughs> and it wasn't until Ultima 3. Uh, oh, let's see. No, no, no. not, not uh, Yes, Ultima 3. So Ultima 3 was the first game my brother and I, as our own publisher, Origin, released. And what's interesting about that is that uh, I also had put in the game when you finish the game, Hey, report your feet to Lord British at origin systems. Mm. And so it was the first time I got letters from anyone oh, who wow. had ever played my games. Cause obviously no internet prior to this <laughs> right. and, and, right. uh, and including now, including at that time. And, um, uh, and even if anybody had written a letter would have gone to the publisher and they would never have bothered to forward it to me. And so suddenly I had these letters from people describing how they were, enjoying or not <laughs> my games and and suddenly my what you what you modernly might call fan mail came in and it was shocking to see first of all even that was like completely different than i had anticipated you know in its in its best form it was always when people were being as complimentary as possible it was one paragraph of hey i really bought your last games and i really enjoyed them and uh, thank you very much but then there was always more and the rest of the page or two or three was, let me tell you what you did wrong. <laughs> and, and so it's like, everyone's a critic. And so I never, I never received or rarely received a like universally just, hey, positive letter just to say, I, you know, you did good work. Thank you. It always had that critical aspect. And I began to see how people were reading things into the game that I had never put into the games. Mm. And so it might be something as simple, or, or I never intended to put into the games. It might be as simple as, hey, I enjoyed playing through the plot, but then I was bored, so I went around and killed all your NPCs, and the person I most enjoy killing is you, Lord British. <laughs> and, uh, uh, or, you know, people would write in and say, wow, I was playing Ultima 3, and, uh, you know, I was trying to kill the dragon, you know, with the big sword that I had earned, and I just couldn't kill him, so I switched to the dagger, and it worked. Wow, what a brilliant game design idea it was to make the dagger the tool that could kill the dragon. And I'm going like, <laughs> I didn't do that. So I'd, I'd actually go back. And, I'd actually go back in the code and look at it, and it turns out like in Ultima Three there was a bug where it didn't actually matter what weapon you used. Your strength <laughs> went to damage, damage. Your level went to damage, damage. But which weapon you used actually was irrelevant. It was just chance. <laughs> wow. They killed him with the dagger. And um, uh, and 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 I realized that people were. Uh, 
people, I began to suddenly became an analyst of, of my own and a critic of my own work where I looked back at it and I said, look, you know, I'm my first three games told the standard fantasy role-playing game story of go kill the evil wizard. You know this because you're told so in the setup of the instructions, you know, what you do to kill the evil wizard is you go pillage and plunder all you can to become as fat, as strong as you can, as fast as you can. You know, the, the, the min maxers would you know describe it as the minimum effort to get the maximum results, which often meant lie, cheat and steal. <laughs> and, uh, and then you ultimately go kill the bad guy who frankly hasn't been doing anything other than sitting there waiting for you in the final level. And so <laughs> you, the player, was actually being, you know, much more roguish mm-hmm. than I had imagined in my own mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know I'm going to get back to Ultima Line here in a minute, so I apologize. I'm taking a wide turn to get to get into the virtues here. We're here for it. Go for it. But I sat down and I said, okay, I, on the one hand, I liked giving you the ability to lie, cheat, and steal. I mean, I, I just, I like the freedom of it. <laughs> but on the other hand, I wasn't thinking about the fact that I was creating the challenge and reward balance such that the optimal path to winning was to lie, cheat, and steal. Mm. And I said, you know, the real world isn't like that. In the real world, we actually still can lie, cheat, and steal. But we actually try to evolve our laws and rules and social customs to dissuade people from making that choice even if they're not morally, you know, feel some moral binding to choose to do so, right? You know, I could go rob a bank, but odds are I'll go to jail or I'll get shot or, you know, worse. And, um, and so I said, so I'm going to create a game where I still not only let you do all those bad things, but I actually encourage it in some ways. You know, I kind of mm-hmm. I kind of give you a nudge to go like, wow, it sure be easier if you just robbed a bank. But then I'm going to make sure the game knows what you did. And so if you lie, cheat and steal, the people from whom you lied, cheat and stole will remember that about you. And then later, when you need their help, they will go, you know, I'd love to help the hero, but you're the most dishonest thieving scumbag I've ever met. So not you. And so that was what started Ultima 4, Quest of the Avatar. That's that term, by the way, the word avatar comes from Ultima 4. It was important to me that that character is you, not your alter ego. You're not playing a Conan game. This is your spirit in, embodied into this hulking, you know, Conan-like, you know, body perhaps. But it's still you that are, res- you the earthling on earth who is responsible for the moral decisions that character just made. And so I, here I am working all this. And in fact, this library of books, uh, we're excited to be in here, the, uh, these books here, um, that's my virtue research library. And so I was going, you know, I was a terrible student, by the way, in history and, you know, sociology and anything associated with philosophy would have been like my most, my least interested and least uh, the subject I did the least well in. But suddenly I had a need of it, you know, and so I, so I, I suddenly became a voracious uh, reader specifically on all of these subjects. And when I started doing this, my friends, my family, my parents, my workmates, they were going like, Richard, you are an idiot. They said, you know, you have this fan mail where people are telling you that they enjoy the lying and cheating and stealing. And you're about to make a game that's going to force every one of them to go be a goody goody two shoes person or they can't win. They said, you, this is a, from, a, from a financial perspective, this is the worst thing I could imagine you going to do. And I was like, nope, you know, I feel that this is the right thing. I'm, this is what I'm doing. And uh, uh, and then when Ultima 4 ultimately came out, 
it actually was my first number one bestseller. So it was uh, uh, vindicated by you know, this whole virtue part. Um, that was a long introduction to then going over to the behavior of Ultima Online. Because again, here I am, I've created another game where on one hand, it allows lying and cheating and stealing. On the other hand, I put in a virtue system. So I'm hoping that people behave well. And we even have a, you know, turning your name red if you like cheat and steal too much and get caught about it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of hoping and assuming things are going to balance themselves out. But boy, do I underestimate profoundly uh, <laughs> people's motivations and where the fun will come from. It has nothing to do with advancement. It has just to do with fun. Uh, and then also how hard people will work to bend edge cases of the code to their favor. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe some of you know some of these, but <laughs> but I have a ton of I have a ton of favorites about you know stories. And I'll, I'll let you ask another question unless you want me to go on to this. But the uh, uh, you know stories from I would go in you know invisible into the help queue and then show up as Lord British to help people solve whatever problems they were complaining about in the game. And, uh, uh, but I'd usually go there first invisibly right. to see what was going on. And boy, I got to tell you, that was such an eye-opening experience to see <laughs> how people were playing or abusing, you know, the game, what they found to be fun that we had never remotely anticipated going into it. Yeah. My, uh, the guy that I played most regularly with accidentally got the Dreadlord title from carving up bodies because you could, <laughs> um, which meant he could, he could only resurrect at the shrine for evil people. You didn't do a whole lot of evil, just was a bit of a corpse freak. And so, and I wasn't. So it was like having a loser roommate that would never pay the rent. Cause every time he died, like, Oh, we got to slub over to the chaos trying to get your rest again, dude. So yeah, there was, just that the, there are, I am sure, a wealth of anecdotes, but I think Harlan wants to ask something else about space. So we'll, we'll kick it over back, back over to yeah. I Listen, I'm, no, 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 you're on the spot. You asked the question, sir. Yeah, I'm asked this question, but it was, I was going to try to get gaming stuff, but it's more related <laughs> to. So when I was here in Austin, they told me, hey, join the AIGDA because there is a kick-ass party that happens every year yeah. at this castle. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I, was like, I was like, sure, I'll join it. And I went to this castle, your, your castle, it happened to be your castle, Castleton. And I brought my family there and absolutely had a blast. There was a pirate ship. There was what looked like... Um, a theater there it was right on the lake the the river the lake it was beautiful what made you design or build this castle i heard at one point in time the parties used to actually be in the castle but that could be a rumor but oh no that's all true but uh uh so uh, but but it's important to know that the part you were on is a 65 acre track on lake austin mm -hmm. beautiful the original castle is about a quarter mile further up the hill. But I had scabbed onto that one so many times. You know, I've been doing this a long time. I got I got a lot of gray hair. <laughs> I, I've been, I, I was hosting them in my home castle for, uh, you know, years and years and years. Then I bought this lower track of land that I built the, the village and the pirate ship and the fort and the theater on. And I started building a new castle on that one. And so it was not possible to host in the old castle or the unfinished castle. 
And so we did them in the lakefront, you know, amongst the village and fort and ship and theater. And and you caught it at the time where right after that, so this was must have been right before near to the year 2000. And it was no, no, I was I got there in 2000 when I moved to Austin, 2010, I think it was 2010 or 2011. OK, so so uh, so did then, then I had by then I had already stopped. So well, let me just give you the story. So the timeline is. About the year 2000, um, I, uh, uh, I'm one of the founders of things like the XPRIZE that helped build the first private vehicle into space, Zero-G Corp that still to this day does parabolic flights take people to Zero-G, and Space Adventures that books flights for people to go to space. And in 2000, we got our first, uh, 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 we negotiated the first trip to space on a Russian Soyuz. And I'm like, rock on, I've just sold my company to Electronic Arts, I've got the paper wealth to go do this. So I'm going to space, you know, everybody. And 2000 was when the internet stock market crashed. <laughs> and all my net worth is in electronic arts stock, mm. which crashes. And so I can't pay to go to space. Frankly, I also had to stop building the castle. I had already started that castle on the new lot. I had to stop or because I was broke. Mm. So I then had to build another. So I built another gaming company. I sold that next gaming company to a Korean firm in this case. Suddenly, I've got the paper wealth again. I'm, in fact, <laughs> I'm, I'm more, I'm wealthier than I was when I sold Origin to Electronic Arts. I was now sold, went from Origin to Destination, which I sold to a company called NCSoft. I'm going like rock on. I'm going to space. This is in 2007, <laughs> and by 2008, there's a real estate stock market crash, <laughs> and so it wipes me out again. <laughs> Oh man! So I have to stop building the castle, but I have already started making payments to Russia. So I actually have to finish those. I mean, so I I barely finished paying for my space flight. When I go to space, I'm literally broke. Wow! Again. Wow. Okay. So I I have invested my entire net worth to go to space repeatedly. Fortunately, I made it one time. <laughs> but what hasn't been finished is the damn castle. <laughs> because as soon as I was back from space, I met the woman that's now my wife here in New York, right downstairs from me right now in her office. And, and she's going like, well, you know, I like Austin fine, but you know, I'm in the finance business. New York is sort of ground central for, for finance. So I'd really appreciate it if you would come here and before we finish the castle in Texas, right. help me out here in New York to do my business. And I'm going like, that's fair. You know, I'm being a good, good husband. And I've kind of been, I've already had my big wins, you know, I've already, you know, built and sold two big companies and been to frickin' space. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to do that. And so now it's only literally just now that we're now planning how to finish the castle in Austin. Oh, wow. And I've finally convinced her after a decade here in New York to start really thinking about making Texas our primary residence instead of New York a primary residence. So hopefully, Harland, I'll get a chance to have you back in the new castle when we get it finished here in a few years. So. That'd be great. I, I, my son, I, I was trying to find the picture for this podcast of my son being on that pirate ship because we absolutely had a blast at that place. It's still there. So, I mean, it's if you go on Lake Austin, you can still see it there in the in the water. It needs a little bit of the rigging needs to be fixed up a little bit, but uh, we'll get it all ship shape and do some more IGDA prep, you know, events down there. <laughs> Jamie, what do you got? Uh, so, so many of the concepts that were like introduced in Ultima Online are like still like used in MMOs like to this day, like. Like having a player-driven economy, PvP combat, all this stuff like still happens. Is there a system that you guys created that you're like the most proud that is like something that's still being used to this day? 
Oh, well, you know, it's really funny. Where I thought we were hit with that is, was there any systems that like were a total bust? And because uh, there, well, there was one, there's one really glowing example <laughs> of the bust. So I'll, I'll go back to the good one here when I, when I think of which one I'm most proud of. Um, okay. Uh, uh, but the one that went bust is we had built a virtual econ- uh, ecology. And so we had made it to where all the grass in the whole world spawned grass that could be eaten by herbivores, the rabbits and deer. And then we had spawn points for the carnivores like wolves. And the if you sat back and watched the game balance, you know, the wolves would come down to the mountains. They need a few rabbits or deer. As long as they were satiated, they would, you know, the, the, the balance of those two would come into play because if the predators overate the prey, then, you know, there'd be a problem. Uh, and we made it such that we, we set them to where the wolves were in the mountains, the, the prey animals, uh, herbivores were in the, you know, the, the wilds. And then near that, of course, were the towns. And so we made the predators where if they ran out of sheep and deer, they'd come into town and start eating villagers. <laughs> and that would set off an automatic quest. And so the quest then for the villager would be either stop the wolves and let the, the, the herbivores repopulate, or maybe just go put some out there yourself. You know, somehow help the balance come into play. And when it was only the team members testing it, when there's a total of maybe 20 people in the whole world, it was great. It actually worked perfectly. We spent a year or more crafting what we thought was this amazing virtual ecology. And then we turned on the beta test and the locusts of players (laughs) (laughs) ate and consumed anything that spawned so fast, no creature that spawned into the world survived more than, you know, 60 seconds. <laughs> and, and, and it didn't matter how much we cranked the spawning up. I mean, literally, it's just a bloodbath. You just, you just increase <laughs> people's focusing on the bloodbath if you crank up the spawn rate. And so we tried everything for about a year after the initial launch of the game. We tried and tried and tried to figure out a way to make it come back into balance. And ultimately, we just ripped it out. Uh, because it was needless code that was taking up cycle time, and no one ever noticed that it was in or removed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, which reminds me of one time there was a, uh, uh, a Sony uh, an EverQuest. There was one of the EverQuest sequels was planned to have this big virtual eco- ecology, <laughs> and our, our team remembers reading when they said, "Okay, for EverQuest two, there's going to be this big virtual ecology," and they described us. And we're going like, "No, no, don't go there." <laughs> <laughs> Because we were just going like it won't work. The locusts will come. Eat you. You know, so uh, that's awesome. Uh, but you know, I would actually say that, you know, but even the concept of rares, that that's probably I would say the thing that uh, that has been the most pervasive and clearly a home run. Because I would argue that NFTs and cryptocurrency, even though to some of those too, limited edition digital objects is something that Ultima Online pioneered. Right. And. Uh, and it and it and it blur you know it and it evolved you know over time, but I'm sure you guys get this. I mean, we were surprised again when you know days after the launch of the game. First of all, oh, I, on Twitter I was saying the word TTP. You guys know what TTP means, right? Oh, don't know. <laughs> oh, you don't. <laughs> you are youngsters. You can Google TTP. Your listeners can Google TTP, and they'll be shocked. But uh, one of the first things that happened in UO was the. You know, 90 second TTP. I'll just say it. It's time to penis. It's how long it takes. How long it takes in an online environment for people to draw <laughs> something phallic. <laughs> That's got to be instant. That's got to be instant. Okay. And every online game since has had the TTP. So it's now a race 
amongst players of new games to figure out how to do something phallic in the game. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing that was super shocking was uh, uh, how quickly people would go online. In this case, it was eBay mm. to sell hard to find items. And, and we're always been, you know, I've always been a believer that time is money. And so if something takes as money has to play the game for a hundred hours to find or save up money for a big sword, right. Then that that sword, that virtual sword, has a hundred hours worth of human effort time worth of value, and so of course that sword is worth, you know, more than a gold piece or what you might sell for in game. Um, what didn't seem obvious is the property value that the early players would get in and go into. In this case, say Trinzic, which I think was always the highest value place to have a home because it had a nice wall around the perimeter yep. and uh, enough other services to draw in and out a lot of players. And so if you wanted to be a blacksmith, there was no place better in the world than Trinsic. And within a week, maybe two of the launch of the game, people were selling, buying and selling on eBay, you know, screens of, you know, eight or 10 tiles by eight or 10 tiles shops mm -hmm. or often 10 thousand real us dollars yeah and we were just sitting here heads head and hands going like oh my god you know what have we created and worse yet is we also realized we're not a bank our code is not stable mm. in the sense of if you bought a virtual item for ten thousand dollars and the game had a hiccup and we had to roll it back a day you will have given away your real 10,000 US dollars to somebody on eBay. Yeah. Who, even if they gave you a deed to the house, when we roll back the deed, when we roll back the game in time, the deed will go back to the original owner, but you won't get your $10,000 back. And there's nothing we can do about that because we did not validate that sale. Mm. And so we then had to go through this like, well, what do we do about this? Do we try to stop it? Do we, we can't really endorse it because then we'd be responsible for the trade. Mm. And so we had to kind of simultaneously have this, we officially are against it, right? but we clearly get that you want to do it. It's just got to be buyer beware because, you know, this is not a bank. But, uh, um, and then of course things went up from there. So all these limited edition developers went up from there. You know, one of the, one of the sneakiest ones that I really like is the concept of a shard. And and I don't know if you know the story behind shards or kind of their life after UO, but um, when 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 EA was telling us our lifetime sales would be thirty thousand units, we sort of believed them. And so you know we scoped the world to hold thirty thousand players, which really meant that only ten percent at most would be online at a time. So that'd be three thousand players, and so we built a world that three thousand simultaneous players. It could handle, but anything more than that, there's no way the server could handle it. And we thought, you know, that's okay. We that was that was that was as big a success as our publisher was telling us we could ever be. Right. <laughs> Until it was no longer true. Until fifty thousand people signed right. up, and then obviously went up from there rapidly. <laughs> and so we went, okay, we are screwed because we only have a world that can hold three thousand people. So what are we going to do when you know hundred thousand people knock on our door on day one? And uh, and so we said, well, we've got to build multiple copies of the world. And I'm going like, no, this is going to suck because now anybody that starts in one world is not going to ever see the person who starts in another world. And friends are going to start in different worlds. Mm. And you know, we hadn't even thinking about trying to transfer data from one world to another. We're going like, oh, this is nightmarish. And so the way I got myself mentally accepting of this moment 
is I made a piece of fiction that goes mm -hmm. back to Ultima One, where Mondain, the evil wizard, who had the gem of immortality, and the way you actually defeat him in Ultima One is you actually go and you break the gem of immortality. You, you go back in time to yeah. while he's creating it, and you break it, and and therefore he's not immortal, and therefore you can kill him. And so I said, well, at that moment, a copy of the state of the world, which was what Ultima One was patterned. I mean, Ultima Online was patterned after that world. We said that is what those all these shards are. The shards of the gym. Each one has a different piece of this reality. And in the future, in some future release of the game, we're going to figure out how people can unite the shards back together of the actual gym of immortality, and they'll all be back on top of each other. And so the concept of identical shards often set in different countries to give people shorter ping times was a piece of Ultima One fiction going back to 1980 that became the reason we use the word shard. But then all the other MMO use makers also called them shards. And then database companies to this day, banks and other country companies that just make duplicate identical server sets for fast access, those are called shards. And none of them have any idea why. <laughs> and so they don't have no idea that it goes back to Ultima fiction. This, you know, the, the concept of shards comes Very from. Cool. So, you know, it's just a it's just weird how some of the stuff, you know, plays out over time. Yeah. And you know, that is, I'm a huge fan of anytime anybody comes up with a lore reason for a system element. We're all destiny is how our podcast originally got together. The whole fact that the entire lore of that game is built around, well, the players got a res when they get killed, and then they built a whole lore-ish setting around that. Right. I'm a sucker for that, man. And Shards is really one of the the, the first instances, no pun intended, that that I remember <laughs> of that uh, of that being there. So, guys, we're yeah. we're coming up on uh, on the hour. So, uh, Mr. Garrett, if you're cool, I'll throw to Anthony for one question. Please. We'll do a quick lightning round from the chat, and then we'll give you your shot to answer ask a question if you'd like. Excellent. So, so Anthony. Yeah. So I was on the site on your site, and I saw your collection of i get like are these magic items like i was just super curious as to what what i'm looking at are these magic tricks magic are you like a magician of sorts yeah so uh so so yes i have in fact uh you know this is a magic trick i was doing for my kids just the other day uh my kids lost a tooth and they they no longer believe in the tooth fairy but i but i had my kids put their tooth inside this stack of folded pieces of paper and then I had them literally just open it back up. Now that you've done that, open it back up. And they opened it up and they found a dollar. <laughs> and it's like, there you go. See, the tooth fairy is real. And so, yes, I am a bit of an amateur magician. Uh, I think my kid's tooth is literally still in the stack. <laughs> and, um, uh, or the dollar, one or the other. Uh, it's the tooth. Uh, but, uh, but and, and, and though I'm not much of a performer, I am a serious collector. But as you can see from my site, I collect magic tricks. And I'm fascinated by the history of magic. I collect automata, little mechanical models that perform little feats. I've got about a thousand of them in my basement here, and another five hundred to thousand still back in Texas. Um, I, uh, I collect medieval arms and armor, and antique scientific instruments, in particular things called oraries, little mechanical models of the solar system. Mm -hmm. I've started building oraries. Sadly, I don't have one here in my office, but uh, 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 but uh, uh, you know, it, so I've spent the last two years at a friend's house where together we're building five of these very sophisticated orrays that are computer controlled and not only keep correct planetary positions for the real world, but can also go into demo modes that show movements. Um, 
Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a lot of old games, you know, so yes, I'm a, I'm a collector. That's where I get my inspiration from is, you know, the awe and wonder of how do they put a gadget? How, you know, how the hell does this work? You know, I'm going like, you always want to take it apart and going to figure it out. And then you go like, oh, okay, it's simpler than I thought. But, uh, you know, but, but the ones that are really clever, you're going like, okay, that's an, I'll put that on the shelf. Cause that's, uh, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so bonus action. I know we're up on time, but bonus action. I have a friend who was an amateur magician as well. And he did this trick that freaked me out and I never forgot how he did it. And he just like dropped the mic and walked off. Right. Like we were at a restaurant <laughs> yeah. and he grabs a fork <laughs> from the restaurant. It was their fork. I already know where you're going. Yeah. He has me hold it in his hand. He has me hold it in my hand and does some stuff, twist the fork around. I open my hand and the where I was holding of the fork was twisted. Yeah. But the rest of the fork stays straight. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so by the way, Yuri Geller, a very famous magician named Yuri Geller, he still performs today, but he used to go on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and a bunch of the other people. And he would have Johnny Carson and others invite in scientists to try to disprove him. And Yuri Geller would say, I have this power. And to this day, he pitches it as a power. To this day, pretty much every magician knows how to do it now, including me. And so I, I can't tip you either. But uh, uh, no, I just want to know if you know how to do it. That's all. It's like, I just want to make sure my friends not like, like dealing with dark powers or anything. <laughs> I do know how to do it. And it's, and the point is, once you know, it's actually not nearly as magical, but it was, but it was the, it was the fork probably from the restaurant. By the way, you can't do it with every fork from every restaurant. It has to be one that's, you know, not robust enough to hold up the being twisted. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> but I, but I promise you that, yeah, that you can do that with a restaurant fork. Yeah. We, and we definitely left and like, I'm pretty sure like confused whoever the bus boy was. Cause <laughs> <laughs> what the? <laughs> Cause we just walked off. Yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> Secret answer is yeah. stop going to Chili's. <laughs> stop going to Chili's. <laughs> so uh, yeah. just really quick hitting uh, a light round from the chat uh let's see because i know saga had a couple of questions in here what is the coolest meteorite impact you've ever seen from space because you mentioned meteorite impact yes uh there is one up in canada i think it's um it's called the manitoba impact crater uh i can't remember it's actually uh it's one that i had seen a photograph of that my dad took but i did not know what it was mm. At the time, my dad took it. It just was some weird kind of, you know, crater impact. And then I looked out the window of the space station, and there it was, this amazing, the beautiful, different seasons. So it looked different, but the shape and radials, you know, scratches out from it. The lake that's in it were all the same. So I, I knew exactly it was the same shot. And then I'm immediately looking at my maps to go, like, where in the hell is this? And um, uh, and that was by far the the most interesting one I've seen. But, but what I also was really shocked by, by looking back at the Earth from space, is I can see them all over. There, you can't look out the window of a spacecraft for more than a couple hours. I mean, by the way, in a couple hours, it means you've already gone around the entire planet, but mm -hmm. along one very thin strike. But, you know, if you if you watch out the window, you're going to see greater impacts. I mean, it's a it's surprising how pockmarked the surface of the planet still is. Best space food. None. <laughs> <laughs> there is, uh, you know, everything about being in space is awesome, except... The food is just pretty, it's, it's meals, it's military meals ready to eat. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not bad. It's just not good. And, and even worse though, is personal hygiene, no running water, no flushing toilet. Hmm. That's got to tell you that going to the bathroom thing is tough, <laughs> but, uh, but if I had to pick a best, what we would do is we would raid the supplies because you only eat about half the food they send up and it, and they literally, they send it up for people that have full meals, but you only eat about half that. So 
half the food goes bad. And so you're before it goes bad, you just go shuffle through the pantry and you get what you want. So I would make fajitas <laughs> out of a tortilla from one thing and brisket from another thing and some cheese from another thing and something sort of like sour cream from another thing. And I'd make my own you know, mini fetus. That was that was the closest I had to good food, which was still not very good. Favorite fictional alien? Oh, uh, alien for sure. Yep, yep, yep. Xenomorphs. Uh, how long were you at the South Pole and how was Antarctica? Uh, until space, Antarctica was and remains the favorite place I've ever been. Uh, specifically, I've never actually been to the perimeter of Antarctica. It's always been both my both my trips were to the interior and the South Pole. And uh, and, there, and and it is, again, truly awesome in the awe sense. I mean, the so many stories, but just one little one was cold air rises. I mean, hot air rises at the equators, cold air sinks at the poles. And so the wind, if I use the top of my head here as the South Pole, the wind tends to go from the south to north. And so the wind going over the mountain ranges in Antarctica is always going generally from south to north. And the ice is generally two miles thick in Antarctica. And the wind going across a mountain would carve out the two mile thick ice to make what looked like a frozen tidal wave out of a Tim Burton movie. Oh, wow. And you would walk down in this trough, seeing this hundred meter tall frozen tidal wave, as far as you were concerned, expecting to look into it and see like mammoths or sea monsters or something frozen in the wave. And while you're crunching around in this ice that had the sun had sublimated into vapor and then it refreezes back into these you know flowers and jagged crystals and stuff that you're crunching around i mean it's it's just mind-boggling and so uh and that's beaten by space but until then and even since you know antarctica is the bee's knees last quick question for the chat mainly because coro bay nikki asked it twice and if i don't get it to it i'm pretty sure they'll throw something at me in the discord afterwards uh, she recently, uh, read recently that William Shatner talked about experiencing the overview effect when he went to space. Is that a common occurrence among other, uh, people who've been to space that you're aware of? Um, it, um, it, his, uh, Shatner's comments seemed like he was almost afraid after seeing earth from that view. Is that, is there a, a little bit of a space psychosis there or what's the, uh, what's the. You know, by the way, no, you, that is a really insightful question. And I got to, I got to say, you remember when I was already telling you about all those things, the fire husband information pouring in your mind, mm -hmm. I use, I have a slideshow that goes with just that series of comments and, and it, but I, I, I skipped the, the beginning and end that I often give the beginning is you're traveling at 17,000 miles an hour. You're going around the earth in 90 minutes. You see a sunrise or a sunset every 45 minutes. You cross whole continents like earth, like, like uh, North America in 20 minutes. Wow. And, and all this data, you know, and you're only 250 miles up. So you actually see the detail very well. You can see, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, Alcatraz, silt going out of rivers, ship wakes on the oceans. Wow. I mean, you can see really good detail, even though you're zipping by and, you know, pretty high up. And after about three days of just enraptured viewing of the earth, uh, I came, I flew across Austin, Texas. And I looked out the window and like, oh, hey, there's Austin. There's Lake Travis. And at the same time, I could see Houston where I grew up. I could see the Gulf Coast where I used to you know, go to the beach. I could see the places, the Boy Scout camps that I used to go to and hike and bike and drive back and forth to visit girlfriends when I was either in school or not the other way. And so it was an area that I knew very intimately the scale of. And I'd be paying really close attention to go around the Earth for 100 orbits. And suddenly I went, I now know the true scale of the Earth 
by direct observation. And as soon as that thought went through my head, I had a physical reaction. I literally shuddered the hairs on my, in fact, they still, you can't really see on the camera, but the hairs, even when I tell the story, the hairs still stand up on the back of my hand. It felt like in a scary movie where they'll dolly the camera backwards, but zoom the lens in to where the actor stays the same size, but the hallway sort of collapses around them. Obviously looking at the earth out the window, it did not change size, size around me, but your sense of reality goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Like in the Matrix movie, you know, when you land on the ground and the earth vibrates, you know, it's really one of those moments. And I was going, what the heck was that? And I'm going like, I can't be the only one who's had this experience. And it wasn't until I got back to the ground that I Googled and saw this phrase overview effect, which clearly that was. And, and then as I was talking with other people about it, everybody had a very similar story to mine. And, and so when I first started talking with people about suborbital trips, I'm going like, there is no way this is going to happen on a suborbital trip because it took me three days and staring out the window for hundreds and hundreds of orbits before this really happened for me. Uh, it was hard for me to imagine it to happening to people quickly. Mm-hmm. However, I actually now know that I'm frankly just a poser and, uh, and, and egotistical enough to think that what my experiences, you know, are should be the same for everybody else. And, and I, na- and, 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 and I now have talked to a lot more astronauts some of which orbital or not have had this moment very quickly, much sooner than I did. And, and I'm also jaded because I've been to places like Antarctica where I've been in the middle of freaking tidal waves that are frozen where I'm expected to see monsters. And so I think I'm just hard to please when it comes to the sense of awe. <laughs> <laughs> and so when, but, but what I find funny about Shatner's trip in particular is that Everybody else, including Jeff Bezos, who's a, a buddy here now in, now in New York, um, you know, when he made it to space, they're like throwing M&Ms and doing somersaults. And I'm going like, dudes, that's the wrong thing to be focused on. If you want to throw M&Ms and do somersaults, do it on a zero G flight that only costs five or 10 grand. Mm-hmm. You're paying like a million bucks. Don't waste it on two minutes of gymnastics. Take it all in. You need to be stuck to the window. Yeah. And Shatner is the first person who on a suborbital flight, I saw do it right. He did exactly that where he said, I don't care what the flips. I can do that some other day. I'm going to sit here at this window and really take in the awe of this view. And so uh, when he came back and described that, I was listening very carefully to what he was saying, how he was saying it. And trying to judge, is he just a good actor or is, did he really have this experience? And I, and I actually believe him. I think, I think he really did have this awesome experience um, and it can be, it can be had. Well, cool. Well, cool. guys, we're going to wrap up. Just one last question. What are you up to now? I know we've talked a lot about, about where you've been and what you've done in the past, but what, um, obviously you've got your book um, and uh, we'll throw a link up to that in the chat and the discord, but. What, what have you got? Are you back in the game industry? What, what? Yeah. So, no, so I'm, I'm still beating around the edges. So, um, y- you know, while EA has been uh, unwilling to play mm. in the sense of give me access to my original properties, there is uh, reason to believe that I may get access to it in the future there you go. Uh, within the you know, foreseeable future. And uh, and so I'm still talking with some of my old developer buddies about what we should do. And I occasionally get on Twitter like it was a couple of days ago, you know, to, talking to, you know, getting advice from players as to what I should or shouldn't do if I ever got direct access back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still hope to 
uh, you know, to, uh, uh, I'm sure I'll still make more games, MMO or solo player. I actually think at this point, I probably would make a solo player game again next. I think I'd go back and whether I have the rights to do it literally or do homages to, I'd go back and uh, you know start over about the time of Ultima 4 and do solo player games for a while before I went back and did it in the multiplayer sense uh, or open world MMO sense. But, you know, but, but we'll see. So I don't I don't have a project I'm you know, marketing right now, but I have investments in some projects. I have some equity participation in a couple of projects, but none of them are close enough to even full production that it's worth, uh, you know, burning, you know, talking about right now. But uh, but, you know, uh, but uh, I'll come back on when I have something more to talk about on games. You're welcome. You are welcome. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> questions. Out. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. Lord knows we, we could go and go and go and go, but we want to be respectful of your time, obviously. So at that, in that point, do you have a question you would like the cast to answer? I, I do. So, so, you know, you know, so I am still a gamer, but it is, but it's worth pointing out that most of my gaming now I do on my phone. Mm -hmm. And it's just because it's ubiquitously with me all the time. And the time I game the most is when I'm sitting in a bus or a train or an airplane and I get a chance to sit down and play. And so I'm curious, do you guys play any mobile games? And if so, give me your top one or two of all time. Give me your top of all time and the one you play now. Mm. Because Mobile game? one, I want to download it, but, uh, but uh, then, I'll, then I'll tell you mine because I've got mine right here in a folder called AAA Games. So uh, I want to contrast here. So what do you guys got? What's your favorite mobile game? I think most of my mobile gaming has been uh, card games. I was playing Marvel Snap until I realized I was going to have to... Um, sell my children in order to get all the cards uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but i guess right now i'm kind of playing um i'm playing a little bit of uh legends of Ruterra, which is uh league of legends uh card game oh there you go uh yep. excellent let's see but of all time though i don't i don't know i wasn't a big mobile player um i don't know if i have an all time snake snake <laughs> uh jamie uh i also don't know like i I played mobile games for years like i can't think of like one that is like my favorite of all time uh like i'm a big zelda fan so like there's this game that was called ocean horn that i played for a long time that's like kind of like a 3d you know zelda style game where you're doing adventure adventure type stuff uh that was really good uh but i think the one i'm playing the most recently is uh the mobile port of vampire survivor i'm just like hooked hooked on vampire survivor cuz it's just like reverse bullet hell uh kill a ton of enemies with all these different power ups and it's a blast i play a ton of it <laughs> it a great system it is um it's really cool uh, how it it is it is a single system in infinite variations. It feels like, yeah, I, mm -hmm. I went through a really hardcore vampire survivor phase about a month ago. Harland. Okay. Uh, I don't play a lot of mobile games, so, but I, you know, guys, I'm, I'm competitive. So I play, I, I played some hard hearthstone, uh, played some Marvel snap, didn't play a lot of it. I, I, I definitely saw it, but the games I probably played the most were, the words with friends oh and chess with friends those are probably the games that i played the absolute most of i just love that competitive aspect of video games awesome <laughs> so i got just asked if i play digital chess yep <laughs> yes i do 
So I traditionally have not played a bunch of mobile, but because I am somebody who generally has to have a game that has an end um, just because of reasons. Um, but uh, surprisingly, lately I've been playing Netflix makes some shockingly good games for mobile. Mm. Uh, Arcanium is a uh, is a roguelike hero deck builder um, grid based that is fantastic and you can beat and be done with. Uh, Into the Breach is a uh, time-traveling mech strategy game, also very good. Um, both of those are on Netflix. Um, surprising amount. Some of them, you can tell they've had the free-to-play pay mechanics boiled out, so some of them are a little bit weird. Into the Breach, Arcanium, not the case. Arcanium, legitimately one of the best uh, deck builder games that I've played. What I'm currently playing the most of, Oregon Trail. <laughs> uh, there is a remake <laughs> of the Oregon Trail on Apple Arcade that is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, awesome. and, uh, I hi would highly recommend that one. So I, I don't know why that's the one I'm the one who plays the games least lately. And I am the one who had probably because those are the ones I can drop in, play for a little bit and then pop out mm -hmm. because I have two children and a podcast, which is like having six kids. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, those are, that's actually great, useful feedback. Making lots of notes. I've already downloaded vampire survivors Yeah, and, uh, uh I'll get the others later. Uh, you know, it's interesting for me as a gamer, as a player, you know, I, I play my own games as I'm making them, obviously. And there's a few other role-playing games like World of Warcraft that I've played because it's just a great game. But usually when I'm players, I don't actually play role-playing games that much, weirdly. I like real-time strategy games. I like some first-person shooters. I like other things, too. And so this on mobile, it's sort of the same way. I, I've not played many you know, you know things that you might associate with me. My favorite of all time is actually Plants vs. Zombies. The original, not the good one. Yeah. Phenomenal. I played all the uh, Kingdom Rush series. I thought it was phenomenal. Uh, a really obscure one that I really loved was called The Creeps. Sort of a, and oh, and did you guys, do you guys ever, just a super retro one, did you ever play something called A Dark Room? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the graphics right, right there for A Dark Room. You know, mm -hmm. So it's like the non graphic game. <laughs> and, and but I think it was just awesome. And uh, uh, so anyway, that's sort of the my my thing. Fantastic. Well, if you do get back to making games again, if I can contribute one thing, no daily quests. There are many of us, many <laughs> of us, many of us that have so many problems with daily quests. I don't get to play Destiny or WoW anymore because it uh, like those those. Hey, if you don't play right now, you're losing out. Aspects of it, terrible, terrible, horrible thing. <laughs> well, well, I know that wasn't a question, but let me respond to that, even, despite that, which is that, you know, it, what's, what's fascinating about that is like, uh, I happen to also play Pokemon Go. Mm -hmm. And Pokemon Go, of course, does have daily quests. Yep. And uh, I am level 36, I think. But, um, uh, and Pokemon Go is a, is a good game. I mean, it's, a, it's fun enough to keep my attention, but it is a classic, I'm not sure you'd call it a level grind, but I mean, it's, it's a repetitious do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And it really doesn't matter, right? There's really no... There's you're not really accomplishing anything, but it, but the time you are spending feels weirdly well spent, right? Despite the fact you're not really doing anything, right? And um, uh, but I'm with you that a a proper game is more like literature. It's more like a novel. It's something you experience that takes you on a journey of the mind that should have relevance to you. Yeah. And, and not only daily quests shouldn't exist, quest generators in my mind are equally bad. Go find five of these at three of those places. And, and my generator has the ability to put some kind of subterfuge in it to make it try to obscure the fact that it's a generator. Mm -hmm. 
but in the end, you know, it's a generator, right? Because it doesn't really add up to anything. It's busy work, no busy work. So, uh, um, uh, you know, so, so fear not, I will, I will not fail you on that. We, we gotta, we gotta get you back on the horse then, man. That's, that's it. I never, never been happier to ever hear that ever again. Well, <laughs> on that note, thank you so much time for your time, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Bear with me for a second here while I figure out, trying to figure out how to stop this stream from this new, new Fango platform. Make, make hit buttons till it goes. No, man. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Good night, everybody.